prayer. Sam's already said, I'll be reading in a moment from Psalm 51. If you've got a Bible with you and wish to turn to it, that's fine. The words will also be coming up on the screen. This morning, I had a look at the weather forecast. And you probably might be aware, we've got a yellow warning for wind at the moment. If you weren't aware before you came, you probably noticed it on your way here. And obviously it's led to a couple of short power cuts so far. Uh, I was thinking the strongest gusts of forecast were about the middle of my sermon, so uh, I was just thinking there might be some spectacular effects uh, uh, in there. If the power does cut, I'll probably just move forward a little bit more, and if you can't hear me, you just have to move in a bit closer. But anyway, from Psalms and Psalm 51, a Psalm of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken dance. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, so I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As with many passages in the Bible, there's far too much for me to cover in half an hour. And even if I had two hours or longer, there would still be far too much to cover. And... This psalm makes no sense without its historical context. So, Sam, can you give me a a warning nine minutes from now? Because I'm going to want want to spend ten minutes on the context, and that also I could spend two hours on. So we're going to have to be very careful. So don't think what I'm going to say today covers all there is to be had from this psalm and the context. Do read it as well, because you'll find there's lot, awful bit lots I won't miss out. By way of introduction, as a church, as a group of churches, we put a very strong emphasis on grace. The danger of that 
is that we can downplay sin. And if we downplay sin, for a good reason, it's because we want to upplay God's mercy and love towards us. But what we need to make sure is that we don't, as a consequence, treat sin lightly. And this helps us do that. Also, we need to remember the context of what we're looking at. These passages don't tell us everything, even though I could, as I said, I could probably speak for four hours on these passages and still not cover everything. But then they're not covering all the aspects themselves. We need to remember the psalm is poetry, so it uses imagery. So not all of it is intended to be taken literally, in that sense. It's the meaning which matters. The other passage, which I'm going to read from in a moment, from 2 Samuel, and chapters 11 and 12, are, are more history. But the Bible tells history as st- through story. It's not the sort of dry academic history. And therefore, might be an idea if I find the right book, uh, therefore, so I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11 in a moment. Therefore, it's only telling you the parts which are relevant to the story. So there's an awful lot of bit which is missed out, which we'd probably actually like to know about. Right, let's get to the nitty-gritty bit of why this psalm was written. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to start reading from verse 1. In the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, David who by this time is the king of Israel, sent Joab, who was the commander of his army, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. In other words, he didn't go out with his army, which up to this year he had. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is that not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been curing herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Sounds fairly typical questions you'd ask somebody you've just called back from the army doesn't seem to be bothered about the answers though because we've got nothing about he wasn't paying any attention to what Uriah the Hittite was saying then David said to Uriah go down to your house and wash your feet and Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house right let's get the summary so far The army has gone to fight. David has stayed back at home. David is bored solid, pacing up and down on his roof of his house. 
He sees a beautiful woman. We don't know anything about her response as to why she went to David when he called, whether she was attracted by power or whether she was intimidated by the fact he was the king. We're not told because in that sense that is not relevant to this story. The relevance of this story is David's sin. Having committed adultery with her, she becomes pregnant. So David then goes for a cover-up. So he calls her husband back, sort of tries to butter him up, and send him off home for a night uh, relaxation before he goes back to the uh, front line in the hope of disguising what he's done. But if you read the rest of the chapter, David runs into problems. Because Uriah the Hittite is more righteous than he is. And while his comrades are at the front, he is not going to take advantage of the fact he's been called back to go and visit his wife. So David gets desperate, holds him back for a bit longer, gets him drunk in the hope that then he'll oblige him, but he doesn't. And the thing we've got to remember is he's Uriah the Hittite. And the thing about Hittites is that they were not Israelites. So here you have someone who's from a foreign uh, group. In fact, the uh, book I'm reading slowly at the moment on race in the Bible suggests that the Hittites are one of the two ethnic groups mentioned in the Old Testament which might be uh, on this sort of uh, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed end of the scale. So he's clearly not local, but he is following God and honouring God. So when that fails, David goes to the nuclear option. He sends him back with a message to the commander, Joab, saying, put him at the front with other brave men, get him into a dangerous position, And then when he's there, abandon him so he gets killed. So we're not quite sure what Joab thinks of that, but he follows those commands. And Uriah the Hittite is killed in battle. But to get Uriah the Hittite killed in battle probably means at least another 20 brave soldiers because you've got to have brave ones, because they're going to a dangerous position and stay there. You can't just use any old ones for this. So the nearest modern equivalent would be a political leader causing, say, an elite squad of the SAS to get killed to try and cover up something they've done. Not, of course, that that could ever happen. So that's what's happened. After Bathsheba has mourned the death of her husband, David takes her as his wife. 
We then get to chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. One minute to go. Right. He came to him and said, There are two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. Right, I have to make this a bit shorter, so I'll tell the story a bit more briefly. Basically, Nathan tells a story of a rich man who steals a poor man's lamb to feed a visitor. David gets indignant, and basically Nathan says, you are that man. God's made you king, you could have had anything you wanted if you asked. Why have you taken uh, from Uriah the Hittite his wife? And caused his death, and death of many other people. The question is, what does David then do? Saul, in a similar situation, though not quite so drastic, where he is challenged by Samuel, makes excuses. David doesn't. But that doesn't mean there aren't consequences from what he did. One consequence is that the child who was born dies. Another consequence, if you read chapters 13 and the rest of the Old Testament history, is that warfare is never far away from the house of David. And you find his sons do what he did in semi-secret, much more publicly. And the whole point is, he couldn't have hidden what he did anyway. Just, if you read the account, the number of people he's got involved in this, the courtiers would have known what had happened. So is God going to be a God of justice or not? And he does, and he sends his prophet. So this Psalm 51 is written by David in response to what has just happened. So let's have a look at what the psalm says. Because when we're honest with ourselves, most of the time we don't want the truth. Most of the time, when anything gets close to us, we want sort of comforting half-truths or comforting half-lies because that's much easier to cope with. The reason there's so much fake news around is because it speaks into things which people want to hear. It wouldn't exist otherwise if there wasn't any demand for it. But here David is willing to face up to the truth and not make excuses. So verse 1 from Psalm 54. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He knows God is merciful, so he throws himself on God's mercy. Blot out my transgressions. So what's the first thing he's admitting to? Transgression, he's gone across a boundary.
often that's what we think of when we think of sins. We think of something we've done which has crossed a boundary God has set. And often, if we're not careful, that is where we stop thinking about it. But David goes on. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Iniquity. We've probably got an image of iniquity. Looking up in the dictionary, it says something like wickedness or gross injustice. And actually, if you look at the Latin words it comes from, it is from not just. Now, while equity, which is the opposite of iniquity, we see as fairness and the use of the principles of justice. So, David is saying, not only have I gone across one of your boundaries, deep down, I'm not acting justly. There's something deeper in me than just doing something I shouldn't have done. And cleanse me from my sin. Notice there's no attempt to try and shift blame onto anyone else. In fact, if you read through the 2 Samuel bit, apart from the first time when she's identified as Bathsheba, she's never mentioned by name in the rest of the account. One possible reason is because the whole point is it's about what David did, not what she did. But, sin is not something we really want to admit to. One of the writers I was reading on this said that uh, a paleontologist has more chance of getting uh, his study sound interesting to people than somebody talk, a preacher talking about sin. It's not something we want to hear about. Going on, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned, so that you may be justified in your words. If you look at this superficially, that could sound very callous. Now, David's committed adultery. He's caused probably 20 plus people to be killed. And he's saying, it's only against you, God, I've sinned. Now, the Bible is not downplaying any of the earlier bits. But ultimately, any sin is sin against God. We cannot downplay sin by pretending it didn't hurt anyone. Or that it was in a situation where consent was given. Sin is sin. And it's sin against God. How is it sin against God? Well, look what David's done. 
He's broken God's laws. He's acted unjustly. And he's caused, abused and caused the death of people made in God's image. So when David says that it's only against God that he's sinned, it's not actually downplaying his sin, it's actually putting it at its true position. It's not just that I have done something to harm a fellow human. It is that I have done something which goes against God and his creation and all that he has planned. David then goes on in verse 5 to take his recognition of who he is one step further. Now some of you will know I grew up in the Anglican church and in the Anglican church you always have a psalm in every service. Uh, whenever this psalm came up my mother would never sing because it will chant whatever it was verse 5 and would do a pump sort of thing. All right, on the basis that none of her children had been uh, brought forth in iniquity or in sin. But actually, that's not what this verse is about. What's happening here is David is recognising that his sin is something which is deep in who he is. It's not that sin is something outside him which has somehow slightly contaminated him. It's not actions which have then made him sin. Rather, there's something deep inside him which is wrong. And it's been wrong since the time he was born. And out of that deep wrongness within him, which is the, what the Bible usually means when it talks about sin, he then commits these things which go against God. It's quite interesting listening to uh, evolutionary psychologists trying to explain about mankind because how do you explain the fact that any human doesn't really need to be taught how to do things which are wrong some things you can see are socially conditioned doing wrong doesn't seem to be socially conditioned because it doesn't matter what society you've grown up in it's there Is there some corruption in our DNA? It would be the way an evolutionary psychologist might look at it, which causes it. We would recognise it as the effect of Adam's original sin, but the, it's corrupted us as mankind. So it's not a surface issue which has to be dealt with. 
Now, obviously, David is writing before the time of Jesus. And we have the great advantage that we live in AD rather than BC. But even so, he, re- he is looking forward to what Jesus would then do. Because in verses 10 to 12, he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David recognises just superficial trying to deal with sin isn't going to work. He needs a new heart. In New Testament terminology, we might explain it, you need to be born again, as Jesus said. If our initial birth, we were corrupted by the effect of sin, we need to be born again into new life, where that initial corruption is now gone. So the solution for David as the solution for us, ultimately, is in Jesus. But as I say, when we, as we've already done, give thanks for what Jesus has done in dying for us, in taking the penalty for our sin, that is something to praise God for, to worship God for, that it is possible. But let us not take sin lightly in thinking, ah, because God will forgive me, it doesn't matter. Because it does. Now, preaching on something like this, it's difficult in one sense. Because it's easy to get everybody feeling guilty. Because all of us have got something guilty to feel about, when we're honest. We all have things which we hide, which we don't tell other people about. But the question is, are we going to be honest with God? David committed serious sin. But when he was challenged and recognised what he had done, he asked for forgiveness. Now, as I say, there were consequences even though he was forgiven. And that's one reason we shouldn't take sin lightly. Because even though we can be forgiven our sins there are always consequences affecting other people, usually. So, we can't take it lightly. But we are in the situation that we have a God who has taken the penalty for our sin, who gives us new life, and who gives us his Holy Spirit that we might live the way he wants us to. Although, to... Just before I finish, just I won't read it now, cause, but I might send it out with some questions for uh, the growth groups. In Romans chapter 7, towards the end, beginning of verse 8, Paul, who's been looking at the issue of sin, goes into the thing of, you know, I know I've been given a new life, but I still do find that the old bits of sin are there in my body, And I do things I don't particularly want to do, even though I know I don't want to do them. And he then goes, who is going to release me from this cycle of sin and death? 
And he says, praise God, it's Jesus who does that. He is the one who brings us into freedom. He is the one who releases from that. So we know that until Jesus returns, we're still going to be having to deal with consequences of sin in our lives. But again, as we often, uh, we were looking at uh, recently from 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, in this psalm, although David is doing it because of great sin, he also is praising God. Because he knows that God is greater than his sin and God can deal with it and God will bring him finally into uh, his new kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you don't hide the serious nature of sin. We want to thank you, Lord, that you don't just say it's something that doesn't matter. It's something you can just push to one side but most of all Lord we do thank you that you have brought us you also provided the way out for us to bring us into new life to bring us eventually into your new kingdom in all its fullness where sin and its consequences will be no more so Lord we do pray in this coming week, Lord, that will give you'll give us a sensitivity <coughs> to your way, Lord. We pray, keep us from falling into sin for carelessness, Lord. Keep us from falling into sin, we pray, from pig headedness, Lord. Show us what our motivation is we pray that we might follow you and go your way but most of all Lord we thank you that when we confess our sins you are faithful you are just and you forgive us our sins thank you Lord Jesus for that Amen